the Mortal Yogi Podcast with me, Dougal Meacham. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good in between, good wherever you are. Welcome to this week's episode of the Mortal Yogi Podcast. I hope uh, this episode finds you well wherever you are in life. Uh, this week, uh, the guest is me again. Um, during my uh, times uh, where I'm training, we have a lot of discussion about yoga history. And what I find um, when we uh, broach this subject and this topic is uh, that most yoga students are very, very unaware of the history of yoga as pertains to um, modern postural yoga. So it almost seems, you know, like yogis are coming in blind and um, that can be great. Uh, there are so many people who don't care where yogi, yoga came from, where, uh, where it's been and uh, are just, just having a great time. Um, other of us, uh, us um, this can be uh, a major um, downside, um, particularly in certain relationships and in certain schools where uh, students' lack of knowledge can be exploited and can be used against them. Um, and, um, you know, over the last few years, yoga has had many um, not so great pieces of news um, around behavior of teachers and schools. And if you think about it, it's that this has actually been going on um, for decades, even hundreds, possibly thousands of years. And so this episode is really about um, as much as you can in an hour, um, flying through three, four thousand years of yoga history and giving you a, um, a educational tour of, of the uh, line of history. Um, and my agenda here is really um, educational. Uh, the difference, I hope, in that the way that many people will have yoga history presented to them is via a yoga school or via tradition. And that's wonderful and has many uh, upsides to it. But its downside is that um, that presentation of that of yoga history will be colored by that school's um, beliefs and by their worldview, which they may not always give you. So this lecture, this uh, discussion this week is a agnostic, if you like, um, uh, dive into the yogic history and um, that means that um, it's going to be a little bit more uh, factual uh, maybe a little bit less passionate um, than i may often be about yoga history um, but it's to give you a framework it's to give you some rails upon which to place um, your uh, yoga um, your yoga understanding if you like um, now so this um this uh this chat is really to give you a couple of definitions of yoga and to give you a go-to timeline and some context uh, for your practice. Now, uh, there, is, uh, there is no one definition of yoga. Um, there are so many de different definitions of 
yoga. Um, if you walk out into your average um, uh, yoga studio, um, uh, you know, um, exercise, uh, sweating, handstands, uh, big yoga poses, bendy, stretchy, will be um, will often be um, the answer. If you get into people who are you know very spiritual, they'll tell you it's a way of life. It's a it's a, uh, a spiritual, mystical journey, um, and it's a way of getting closer to whatever they perceive as uh, as uh, possibly a very religious take on on yoga. And I think that this um, begins to touch on uh, a concept that we um, don't necessarily always consider. Um, when we think about yoga philosophy and yoga history. Um, yoga is um, part of a very large um, Hindu worldview. And Hinduism, Hinduism is, a, uh, is a religion, particularly as it's practiced today from India, along with some of the other great religions of that part of the world. For example, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, all of these have come out of uh, out of the the belly, if you like, and particularly the Indus Valley belly of northwestern India. Um, and yoga, you, I, I think, is probably easiest understood as a part of the Hindu worldview and the Hindu um, way of life. And Hinduism, as very different as a spiritual. Um, animal so to speak is unique in many many ways um, let's take a couple of words that we may not have considered before um, we all know what the word uh, I think atheism means a theism atheism theism is the belief in uh, a god or a super powerful entity or consciousness and atheism is the belief that there is no God you put the a in front of the theism it's neg a negative and um, there are many many uh, discussions about atheism and the belief or the in the existence of supernatural super powerful uh, beings in Hinduism Many of us in the modern world may, may say that we are atheist. We believe there is no God. Modern mainstream Hinduism, just like modern mainstream Christianity, believes that there is some type of uh, super, supra-powerful uh, entity in this world. So it's theistic. And more than that, very different to Christianity or, say, Islam, uh, the old... Um, Hindu ideas are that there are more than one gods. Why have one when you could have many? If you've ever been to India and uh, you have these discussions, uh, religious Indians, Hindus will look at you almost um, uh, with pity. <laughs> you only have one god. Well, that's, that's, that's such a shame because we have hundreds, we have thousands, we have even millions. There's a god for everything and everyone and so it is a polytheistic um, uh, polytheistic 
religious belief system compared to our monotheistic uh, belief system. I'm bringing all this up because uh, there will be a debate in yoga whether yoga is a religion or whether it's not a religion. And uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to suggest through this uh, brief chat that that's up for you to decide. There is no right or wrong. There will be those of us in this world and in yoga who are strongly um, of the belief that yoga is religious and others of us will be not religious. It's about, it's about aforementioned handstands and stretchy stuff and building abs and core strength. Um, but this lecture is about the background and the history of yoga and where it's come from. And uh, anyone who's doing this stuff, I think, should be aware of where it's, of the big, bigger um, uh, baby, if you like, that it's come out of. Um, and when we talk about um, theistic reliefs, beliefs, um, we tend to, in our Christian um, influenced West, we tend to believe um, that we have a uh, we have a belief that uh, we are God is separate from us. God is not us. Uh, for example, Catholics will say that God is not me and you and Uncle Fred and Auntie Mage, etc., etc. God is separate. This is called panentheism, the belief that God is not in our world, that it's separate. But Hindus often have pantheistic, panentheistic, separate, pantheistic. God is in the world, in the flowers and in the trees and in the rocks and in my, in my socks and in my hair and in the wind and in the sun. Hinduism is very like this as well. I think this is, these are all worthy ideas to consider when we start to dive into the uh, riot and the fun that is yoga and the Hindu faith and the Hindu influ influence universe because as Westerners particularly if you're a modern Westerner we've, we've kind of dumped Christianity but we still have the overhangings of um, of particularly Catholic and Protestant Christianity which have told us that God is separate and a, a, a big consciousness if you like has to be has to be has to be a god or has to be something which is outside of us and outside of our ability to even get in touch with and to hindus and to many asians in the world taoists zen buddhists for example the idea that um, big consciousness big awareness big power can only be separate from us as human beings is quite of a strange idea so there you go at theism panentheism, all of these kinds of things, polytheism, the belief in many gods, monotheism, there's only one god, most of us will be atheist, and panentheism versus pantheism, is God within us all, or is some kind of super intelligent or awareness within us all, or is it, does it have to be completely separate? For example, if this is getting a little bit too religious for you already, I've been watching recently on Netflix a, a series about American astronauts um, looking down on the world. And many of them 
and you know, of course, these are uber educated, uber, most of them atheist scientists look down on the world and say there's something big and there's something intelligent about the world and as they look down on it the way it organizes itself and i'm not sure i would call it god but there seems to be something outside of this outside of us which seems to be able to organize and direct in a way which we don't understand yet they won't call it god uh, and I'm not sure many of us would want to even consider that word. It's a very loaded word these days. But Hinduism and yoga begin to ask, possibly sometimes, to consider these types of questions. Okay, that's enough of all that stuff. That might have freaked many of you out <laughs> already. Now, I'm going to, when I talk about uh, yoga history, before now that having had that preamble, um, it takes place in over six main periods from very, very early um, 3000 plus BC, way back into um, the present day. And there are six main periods. Um, there is the Indus and pre-Indus Valley civilization. Um, there is what's called a Vedic period. There is an epic and Puranic period, number four. There's a medieval period. Uh, which takes place up to about 1500 CE. And then there's from 1500 CE to the present day, which I'm just going to call the modern period. So six big periods. Let's have a dive, a dive into them. The first one takes place um, in uh, very, very early pre-BC, at least 1500 BC even up to 8,000 BC. The, it, this is very, very far back in our rear view mirror of history. And depending on which school you talk to, depending on which guru, yoga historian you talk to, you're gonna get very, very different answers on, on the dates of all of this. And of course, history changes, our discoveries change. We have, um, we have new science and research happening all the time. So my aim here is not to give you um, like dates, like Patanjali was born in exactly, exactly whenever, but to give you rough guidelines. So first we're gonna talk about the, the time, you know, this is the time of Egypt and Mesopotamia. This is the time of uh, pre-dynastic China and Mesoamerica and this is the pre-Vedic uh, society or pre-Sanskrit um, speaking um, uh, peoples of, of India, which are probably, uh, probably the first people to walk out of Africa and their descendants were in India for uh, hundreds of thousands of years um, and uh, spoke and lived uh, in a culture which was pre-yogic, which was pre-Hindu. Um, this is a ritualistic society. This is a society which believes that things must be done and affairs must be uh, ordered so that humans and the universe can have a co- uh, beneficial relationship and it's like so many 
society's shamanic. It is ritualistic. It is highly sacred and identities are highly clear. There are, there are gods and there are powerful beings and there are humans who are not so powerful. And, but there are some within the humans who are able to talk to these uh, big entities. And China has these, South America has these, Africa has these, Australasia has these. These are the shamans, the people who are able to communicate with and give some direction to uh, give some direction to um, rulers and people of influence so that they may make the right decisions for that society, for that culture. Now, this um, this uh, period, as I said, is pre-Sanskrit, uh, and Sanskrit is the language of yoga. Uh, many of the words that you may have att attempted to uh, memorize and understand in yoga poses, for example, Chaturanga Dandasana, or Urdhva Dhanurasana, or Adho Mukha Svanasana, are Sanskrit words. Now, this is fairly debatable and not very popular in mainstream Indian culture, but the Sanskrit language probably did not arrive in, uh, arise in India independently. It probably came from, um, from Central Asia, where now you'd have Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, Pakistan, these kinds of places. And uh, the people who came into uh, India um, before, say, around 3000 BC up to about 1500 BC, were a new type of people who called themselves Aryans. Aryans were horse riding warriors, very much like, I guess you would say, um, the Romans and the Greeks. Um, and they were horseback riders and they rode chariots, they rode um, elephants. But particularly the horse was particularly important for them and one of the biggest sacrifices that they could do, these were also people who were, um, who were ritualistic and sacrificial in their beliefs, sacrificed horses and sacrificed other animals to, as offerings to, for example, gods to, like Surya, Surya, the god of the sun, Surya Namaskar, sun salutations. So, uh, an Agni, the god of fire. Maybe you've heard of a yoga pose called Agni Stambhasana, fire log pose. The, these proto-yogi, proto-Hindu cultures eventually uh, moved into India and merged with and became one with the Indian people. But they brought with them a great love of horses. And this becomes very, very uh, uh, clear when we get into the later stories and mythologies of, of yoga, horses are going to be everywhere. So you have a movement of people into India and they speak Sanskrit and they are ritualistic, they are sacrificial and endeavor to engage with the universe by kind of placating the gods uh, with 
sacrifice. They also have many of these rituals are going to include things like chanting and singing and abilities to have some kind of resonance with the universe. And this is a large part of, uh, of what they, um, of their processes of you like, of, of uh, communicating with these higher powers and working with them. Now, over time, the, these Sanskrit-speaking people, they become aware of and hear what we would now call Vedic texts. Um, Vedic texts are the oldest texts in Hinduism, and yoga will also speak to these. And many of these texts, not all of them, but most of them are supposed to have been heard. They are not supposed to have been written by humans. They are supposed to have been heard very much in the same way um, that many Muslim texts, many Taoist texts, many Buddhist texts are supposed to have been transmitted, many Christian texts, to those of great faith um, from, from these higher um, uh, consciousnesses, if you like, uh, for the benefit of humans. And so many of the Vedas and their later Upanishads, which are the later texts in the Vedas, um, are now going to be transmitted to humans, or a historian would say, have been written down, um, possibly for the first time, between around 2000 BC and somewhere around mm, 1000 BC. Sometimes you're going to hear much older uh, dating for this, but let's use these rough, roughly. Um, I said written down earlier, but I want to make a massive point here, and this will also come way back in and, and become relevant uh, when we talk about uh, yoga history in the modern age. India is not a culture at this point, and until very recently, is not which highly values writing down. <laughs> you may go to India today and still find this to be the case. People don't write that stuff down. I used to do business in India and contracts have far less weight compared to social oral contracts that you give handshakes and drinks that you have with people compared to a written down contract. I remember having one contract with one company and they said, and I said, well, that's not what in the con it says in the contract. And they said, oh, that's not important. Um, what we agreed face to face and shook on is much more important. And, you know, when I spoke to our company lawyer, they weren't in agreement. But my experience of India is that that's the case. People still, you have to have a social oral contract, normally witnessed by other people for it to be real. And this is the way that yoga philosophy and history and Hindu philosophy and history has been passed down over countless generations. The Vedas may sometimes have been written down, but more often than not, they've been memorized. They've been chanted over and over and over and over again, ritualistically in sacrifice uh, ceremonies, and then passed on almost digitally from guru to student, and then from student who becomes the guru onto the next student. And so some of the Vedas were not written down until 
relatively recently, some of them less than a thousand years ago. So yoga is, and the culture of India is oral. It's an oral tradition. And uh, this of course causes huge problems for us as yoga historians or for yoga historians when they try to put dates on things. There, are, there is very little textual um, evidence for many of the claims that many yoga teachers and many yoga traditions make. And you know, yoga historians will say, well, that wasn't written down. You can't prove that. And yoga people will simply say, well, of course it wasn't because this is an oral tradition. Very different to, for example, Christianity or Islam or Judaism, which has had a very, very old writing uh, culture. So you have these people who came from India, outside of India with their language. Uh, and you have a very top-down uh, society. There are the gods, there are the powerful people, there are the shamans and the rulers. And slowly going down, there are strata, there are levels of society. And of course, if you go to India today, uh, this is still very clear in the caste system. This was the way that or India organized itself and the way that much of India still organizes itself. Uh, religious Hinduism refers to the Vedas, refers to the Upanishads, and because those things have been around since old and passed down since time be be beyond time, that is almost law, that is almost sacrosanct. Now, this became and became challenged in the pre BC in the in the pre-modern era in around a thousand to five hundred BC and some of the characters who challenged it are very well known to us even if we've only heard of their names the Buddha Mahavira the founder of Jainism and Gautama Buddha the founder of Buddhism all lived between around 700 and about 200 BC roughly all of these people come out of, or create rather, what is now known as the ascetic period. And the ascetic period is now moving into the late Vedic period, which is my third um, kind of timeline uh, landmark. All of these people, uh, and Gautama Buddha is a great example, are often royalty and they they are disillusioned with, in the same way that so many spiritual outcasts and pioneers are, are disillusioned with the complexity and the, uh, the rid rigid uh, system of society. Gautama Buddha left his very, very wealthy lifestyle to become a wandering ascetic, a wandering beggar. And these these people, which include, of course, Yoga's Patanjali, who wrote the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, are all revolutionaries. They are all individuals who say, no, I don't need somebody like a shaman or a king to help me understand the great mystery of the universe. I don't need that. I can do it by meditating. I can do it by contemplation. I can do it by thinking. 
and experiencing the universe right inside my body. All of these individuals, Mahavira, the founder of Jainism, Gautama Buddha, Patanjali, amongst others, were revolutionaries and walked away from the big, complex, spiritual and religious organizations uh, which were running India and, and uh, ruling organizations which were running India about this time. You can imagine how uh, dangerous these ideas are to uh, ruling uh, classes and ruling populations because they are essentially saying, we don't need you. We don't need you to tell us uh, uh, what the rain god said, what the sun god said. If we sit down and meditate, if we sit down and experience, we can understand the greatness and the vastness and the complexity and the intelligence of this universe. We can do it all our own. And eventually people like Gautama Buddha attained enlightenment and vowed to pass on their ability, their secret into having an intimate relationship with the power of the universe directly. In modern uh, Western religion, this would be a, you know, this would be heresy. In Christianity, this would be saying, I don't need the Pope to talk to the one God. I can feel God. I can feel the universe pulsing through my veins. I can he feel the power of weather and gravity and the stars and the intelligence of nature. I can feel and understand that myself, if I go and practice hard enough, I can do that myself. <coughs> I don't need you. I don't need all of the complexity that you can offer. So this is a schism in time, moving away from the uh, very organized Hindu and other uh, re religious and societal organizing structures, particularly the um, Kshatriya caste who, ru who rules India until very, very recently. And all of these, Buddha, Mahavira and Patanjali, and this is why yoga is all, one of the reasons why yoga is always a counter current, is always a counter culture in India. Yoga never really goes mainstream uh, because it's always against uh, rigidity and organization. It's always saying no, and it's always going to be uh, mystical, and it's all go always going to be. Um, it's always going to be, what is that word for um, uh, for Christians who, who, uh, who go and discover God themselves? Revelationary. It's going to be you, you, the ability for you to understand everything in the universe is going to be totally in your hands should you choose to do that. So obviously the Buddha eventually uh, kind of uh, uh, upsettingly, I think Buddha would say, eventually his ideas formed um, the ground for a new uh, organization and a new way of organizing society. But he always said that, that didn't need to be the case. So Patanjali in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra came up with the words of, and his definition of yoga, Atta Yoga Anushasanam Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. He said that 
Yoga is the study of the mind, chitta, and our flavor of mind. And he said, that's all it is. It's the study of the mind. And if we study it long enough, we can see this true study of the mind. Tada drashtusvarupe vastanam. He says, if we really get to understand the mind, we will see its true nature. And the true nature, he doesn't say right on in the beginning but of his text, but over, over the period of the text, which is never a page turner. You never have any yoga student who goes, oh yeah, <laughs> read the whole of Patanjali last night, totally rocked my world. Uh, uh, I'm now, I'm now a, a Patanjali yogi. No. Um, but Patanjali says, essentially says that yoga is understanding the mind, and if you understand it, you can understand its true nature. You don't need to go to, you know, a guru. You don't need to go to uh, a retreat in Bali. You don't need to go to a uh, uh, fascial release uh, uh, specialist to understand the greatness of life. You can do it yourself. And over time, um, this is thrown into the big pot. And of course, is so exciting for many of us. Uh, individualistic Westerners who love, oh yeah, I can do this myself. I don't need the government or my parents or other people to tell me what I can do. I can find this all out on myself. Incredibly exciting for us as uh, uh, narcissistic, crazy uh, Westerners who, who like this idea already. But anyway, I'm getting beyond myself. So time goes on and um, we move into a period um, which I'm gonna call the, um, uh, which I'm gonna call the uh, epic and Puranic period, which is about 500 BCE to about 500, 750 CE, and it is exactly what it sounds. This is the time uh, when big stories, big epic stories, are written, um, and they form the foundation for another one of the big texts, which we often read in uh, yoga teacher training, the. Uh, Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Blessed One, which is a part of a huge Sanskrit uh, poem called the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is such a long Sanskrit text that the first guy who tried to translate it into English obviously had to learn Sanskrit first, died about two thirds of the way through. <laughs> it's big, it's being finished off. Uh, I think it might even be finished now, but it's one of the longest poems um, in the world. It's the story of a feud between two sets of cousins over who should rule um, the world and over, uh, the, over the story arc of lust and power struggle and war and sex and villainy and uprighteousness and etc etc the uh, story of the Mahabharata ends in a massive uh, world-ending duel between the two sides and the duel in that J-E-W-E-L the duel in that duel D-U-E-L is a story uh, between one of the brothers on the good side um, on the bright side of the force with Krishna who is of course a uh, an embodied um, supernatural, super intelligent being, one of the 
gods of the universe who comes down to advise him and help him in one of the most trying times of his life. The Bhagavad Gita is a fairly readable and there are good um, good uh, versions of the whole Mahabharata on things like Audible where you can listen to them. And if you're like uh, good, you know, Lord of the Rings or Dark Materials or Star Wars like uh, mythology, the Mahabharata or even uh, Marvel uh, comics, uh, the Mahabharata is a definite must read. Um, there are other stories out there like the Ramayana, the story of Ram, which includes the uh, monkey god Hanuman who makes his epic leap and is the uh, inspiration for Hanumanasana or forward straight splits um, in modern yoga. Um, the story which is much more simple and short, uh, a love story between um, and of course uh, 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 a bad guy has to get involved and kidnap the uh, the princess just like so many of the good Disney stories and has to be saved um, and is the story of how we are um, doomed if you like to be our bestest self no matter what we think no matter how half glass half full or um, negative and pessimistic we are the Ramayana is, is a story of victory and joy and inevitable success if you like always a very good uplifting read so uh, and then there are other stories outside of the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, uh, which are called the Puranas, which are stories of other um, uh, mythical beings, uh, for example, like Ganesha, um, and the stories of Krishna in his childhood, which are very, very popular uh, in modern India. Um, I think the next biggest period after, after um, the uh, epic Puranic period is the medieval period, which for most people... Um, is most obviously tied with Tantra. Tantra is a huge revisiting and re-editing of all of the uh, kind of stories and weaves, lines of philosophical and spiritual exploration to date. The biggest um, and most well-known interpreter uh, from the Sixth, uh, sixth century, roughly post the Common Era, is Shankara and his Advaita Vedanta movement, which um, is a huge reinterpretation of the Vedas, of Patanjali, uh, of everything in the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, um, which is an aim which aims to again demystify and simplify in many ways. Uh, the relationship that we have with everything. Tantra, of course, if you put Tantra into Google, you're going to get uh, interesting, mostly sexual uh, iconography and pictures. But Tantra, Tantra, Tan literally means to expand, and Tra is an instrument. So Tantra is an instrument of expansion, expansion of our mind into a direct relationship now with everything around us. It's a vast revisiting of, if I were to simplify it, Patanjali often was um, criticized by tantrics as belittling the world, as wanting to go towards a, uh, get out of his body, if you like. Many, even today, many spiritual people say, ah, 
uh, I don't think I really need to have a body. I can go, I want to go and fly through the stars and talk to other beings and um, be able to commune and communicate with stuff we can never understand as humans. So I don't want this body. And Patanjali, it was said by the Tantrics, was a little bit like this. He said that I don't, it, it's the, the real human experience, real immortal experiences and the best optimal human experiences you need to get out of this mundane experience. Well, Tantra was really a rejection of all this, says no, no, no. Real understanding and optimal human experience is right here, right in this body. And of course, Tantra has a massive impact on the hippie movement of the 70s in the United States and Europe. People like the Beatles and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, etc., uh, etc., et are all you need is love, love is the answer. Everything is beautiful. All of this kind of stuff is hugely impacted by, by Tantra. We might not, might not know it, uh, but Tantra is the, uh, um, is the base for so much of this stuff. So, wow, we haven't even mentioned yoga poses yet. <coughs> so we've run through, um, we've run through the pre-civilization India into uh, Sanskrit India and then into the Vedic period and into the epic period and then into the tantric medieval period. Finally, we get to the modern period. And I think where most of you uh, will, will be most interested, you'll notice that I haven't talked about yoga poses that much <laughs> yet. Why not? This is a huge um, and fairly controversial area of yoga history. There will be some yogis who say, as I said earlier, because we never wrote stuff down, we don't know how old yoga poses are. They were passed on from teacher to student, etc., etc., forever and ever, until the modern day. And there'll be others, and there are some very interesting scholarly works uh, on this, uh, that say, no, 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 no. We can clearly see pre-physical postural yoga coming out of a non-postural culture. And I have to say, they're fairly convincing works. The first real um, uh, documents we have of uh, yoga poses is the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is, a, which is a 15th century text. But it only has, do you want to guess how many poses it's got? 15. It has 15 yoga poses in it and um that's it and that's the one of the only documents with a lot of with a lot of yoga poses in right up until the 20th century now between the 15th century 15th century and 20th century india india goes through a nightmare of muslim invasions Mo the mogul empire and then british india uh the raj which takes over and of course is a huge cultural has huge, both of these have huge cultural impact on India today and will explain a lot of modern India's uncomfortable relationship with Hinduism. They have a less uncomfortable relationship with Britain simply because it's smaller and much easier to uh, just uh, laugh about now. Uh, but of course, um, India is hugely impacted by these two. And 
The good works that I've read over time and have great photos of uh, black and white pictures of men and women in loincloths, if that, uh, coming out of the forest to be photographed. There are, they are bearded and dirty and sunburned, uh, but sometimes fairly learned and sometimes fairly wise. Some of them are just brigands and thieves, uh, but some of them are clearly very spiritual people. One of my favorite pictures is a, is a bunch of uh, uh, British soldiers in there, clearly very new uniforms with, a, with one yogi who's completely the opposite, hasn't washed their loincloth for a while. And they, it looks like he's been arrested by these guys uh, somehow. But another one of my favorite uh, early uh, yoga pictures is what, is what looks exactly like those same people now doing uh, arm balances, is like pincha mayarasana, forearm balance, and handstand, and other things. And what you get in the 19th century, particularly late 18th and 19th century, is a massive fusion of ideas and cultures in India. And somehow out of this big bubble comes modern postural yoga. How and where it exactly got there, I, there's no way I can go into exact amount of detail here. Suffice to say that we can clearly trace modern postural yoga to one man. That's right, you heard me, one man. And his name is Krishnamacharya. Krishnamacharya is the yoga instructor in the Mysore Palace in northern India. Um, he lived between about 1888 and 1988, so 100 years old. And he was the teacher to specifically young boys in the Mysore, in the Mysore Palace with the Maharaja there. And there are great photos of him teaching young boys in what is now very clearly, obviously, so many of the poses that we would associate with a modern yoga practice. Some of the assists that he gives in there are a little bit intense, <laughs> like standing on some people in uh, big backbends. But this guy, all modern postural lineages can come from him. Now, he's nowhere near as famous as his two students. And I think most of you will have heard of at least one of these. BKS Iyengar of the very famous Iyengar style and Patabi Joyce who came up with, coined, and then promoted his Ashtanga Vinyasa style, which is so, so, so popular. Both of these styles, both of these teachers, their teacher was Krishnamacharya. Just let that sink in for a second, because those two styles are so, so, so different. But if you talk to them and read them, their books, and listen to them, and I met BKS Iyengar, if you've You've, if you had chance to, to get in with these styles, you can see that they both, both of them created a lot through their whole life, but they also met their teacher at different times in his life, and clearly his practice changed. So both of these guys, Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, came into yoga Particularly, this is clear with Iyengar from a very physical perspective. Iyengar said, I was a sick young boy. I could hardly walk. 
how could I have thought of um, philosophy? But they practiced physical yoga to get better, to get healthier. And then, over time, the philosophy merged with their physical practice. And Krishnamacharya himself was an upper caste Hindu. He was, um, um, uh, he was of the, uh, the priestly caste, which back in the day <coughs> was those shamans was those people who helped the ruling class understand the universe and talk with gods. Now, that's not what Krishnamacharya did, but his caste, his position in society, was one of those peoples whose role it was to embody and pass along the great studying, the great learnings, and the great teachings of the Vedas and other great, these other great spiritual texts we've been, and stories that we've been talking about. So, through these... Krishnamacharya, but particularly through his two students who became the most famous teachers of globally of yoga in the 19, in the 19, 19, uh, 20th century. We can lead almost everything that we do back to these guys. So there are famous teachers like TKV Desi Kachar, Indira Devi, Baron Baptiste, Bikram Chowdhury, Shannon Life, uh, David Life and Shannon Gannon. All of these people you can trace back to Krishnamacharya and his two students. Shannon Life and uh, David Life and Shannon Gannon were uh, Iyengar, uh, uh, Ashtanga Vinyasa students, uh, Baron Baptiste, Bikram Chowdhury, uh, very clearly influenced by all of these guys. Um, and over the 20th century, and particularly po in post war North America and Europe, these guys and their students become very 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 popular and um if you now think about the top western teachers who are now in their 60s and 70s people like anna forrest people like uh um uh, john friend people like um so many names uh i, I can't think of them but they are the original students of BKS Iyengar and Krishnamacharya. So, and now, of course, most, what the average age of a yoga teacher these days, uh, anything between 18 and 25, <laughs> I'm clearly at the northern end of that, uh, that age range. Uh, but their, their teachers and their teachers' teachers, you'll be able to find, if you ask your teacher who was your teacher and who was their teacher, and who was their teacher, eventually you're going to find your way back to one of these big names who brought yoga to the West and even to the East. So many of them, Iyengar, for example, has centers all over the world, as does um, uh, Patabi Joyce. And as the need for teachers grew with yoga becoming more and more popular, the need to uh, create a huge... Um, a system, pedagogical and educational system around yoga grew. And texts like Patanjali and the Bhagavad Gita became standard uh, for allowing students a window in, if you like, to um, the yoga world. Um, so that's it. <sighs> that's uh, 10,000 years, 6,000 years of history into 50 minutes. Um, now, 
of course, if you think of power yoga or vinyasa yoga or uh, tripsi core or anusara or uh, um, most yoga styles have come out of these big have come out of these big um, these big three and their students. So I invite you to Google them and understand them a little bit more. Now, there are a couple of yoga styles, of course, which don't lie in this big timeline. And specifically relevant to me, I'm thinking of yin yoga. Yin yoga is a Chinese style of yoga. But others like kundalini yoga um, uh, are, are overwhelmingly influenced by the timeline of these people. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to put up a, a picture to go with this um, podcast, which will give you some faces um, to, to put to um, names that I've mentioned in here. So the yoga journey is a long one. I've been studying um, yoga for over, forms of yoga for over 20 years, at least 20 years. And it's a rich, deep, awesome scary uh big monster of a of a of a of a of of an apple to take a bite out of um i run through the whole thing here very very quickly if any of it strikes you as interest start there and um there are many ways uh, to get into the culture and the history of yoga but i think what you can see is if you as i come right back to my one of my comments early on in the um, in in this podcast is that yoga is so many things to everybody. If you talk to many yogis, they will they will talk about their abs and their core and handstand, but they will also talk to relaxation and connection and grounding. And although some of the kind of early talk in this um, uh, podcast may have been a bit scary using words like God and greater consciousness and the power of the universe. I think many modern people are quite happy and willing to entertain the idea that this world has power that is without of, out of us. And yoga is really a history of humans trying to understand that. Obviously, it's a very different world to the one that we have now. But I find it curious. I find it fascinating that so many people connect to these ideas and these practices, whether it's postural, whether it's meditational or otherwise. And so yoga is a wonderful being. Yoga is a wonderful story. Go throw your hat in the ring. Read stories. Connect with other yogis. Go do your practice. See what we're talking about. I hope you've had a good time listening. Thank you very much. I'll see you around. As we say in yoga, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.